if you are a Christian, and I hope you are, that means necessarily that, that you have come to a point in your life when, when you saw your brokenness, you saw your sinfulness, you saw your need for a Savior, and you asked Jesus uh, to be that Savior. You came to understand how much, how much God loves you and, and, and at what lengths God would go to save you. And if you're a Christian at some point that, that filled your heart, or gave your heart a sense of peace, a sense of joy, a sense of closeness to God that you just can't get, Anywhere else. But if you're a Christian, I want to make one other prediction. Take one other shot about uh, something else that's true about you. If you are a Christian, I'm going to guess you have also had points in your life where you wish you felt that peace, that joy, and that closeness to God like you felt at some other point earlier in your life. Like I know, I know I'm a Christian, but I wish I felt that closeness before. We've all, as Christians, been there. Like I, I've lost some of my first love, or I just wish I felt closer to the Lord like I used to. Anybody, anybody been there, felt that? Well, I want to say mainly something about renewing our faith walk this morning. But before I do, I feel like I've got to say something about that feeling that sometimes we desire. It is, it's easy and I think it's a little bit dangerous to make our pursuit of the Lord or our pursuit of any religion a pursuit of feelings. If, if your relationship to Christ is just that, if it is a relationship, just like any relationship, it is dangerous to make the way you feel the focus of that relationship, right? If you are an adult and a young person, your child or somebody else's child, came to you for relationship advice, you would never tell them, I'll tell you what you need to seek in a relationship. Warm, romantic feelings at all times. You just make the basis of your relationship, those, those butterflies in your stomach, and when the hairs in the back of your neck stand up, make sure that is what you always have as the focus of your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You would never give someone that advice, right? In fact, you would warn them against that because you would say, listen, if you just ask that person to be in control of how you feel, you're asking them to do something they're not qualified to be in control of. And also, if you make like exciting romantic feelings the basis of your relationship, at times when you don't feel that way, you'll be in danger of going outside that relationship to find feelings because you're, what you're looking for would be 
feelings and not a person. What you want to know are feelings instead of wanting to know a person. Wouldn't you say that? Our relationship with Jesus is no different. We're trying to get to know a person, to do life with a person. And it is dangerous to constantly chase spiritual ooey-gooey's and feelings and confuse that with our relationship with the person we are pursuing. It's not that sometimes I don't have feelings that I love when I pursue my relationship with Jesus. I do. In the same, in the same way that at times you have feelings with your spouse that you just you can't get anywhere else. It's great. But it is it's dangerous to pursue feelings in place of relationship and confuse those those two. That's why there's there's a little bit of danger in talking about renewal and revival. Like we're going to talk about for the next several weeks, because the rest of the book of Nehemiah is about revival in, in Jerusalem. And, and the danger is confusing feelings and revival, renewal in my relationship with the Lord. That's a been a common criticism of revival movements. You ever hear of Billy Sunday? Billy Sunday was a major league outfielder. And he quit baseball. This is clear back in the 1880s. That's why you haven't maybe heard of him. Uh, and he quit baseball to become a, an itinerant preacher. He was, the, he was the Billy Graham of that age. Okay? He was the, the, the number one evangelist in the country, Billy Sunday. But, but he went and would do a revival and then he would leave. And, and sometimes, very often, what happens is people have felt close to the Lord and then he left and they kind of floated away. Um, and, and some people were critical of his movement. And one time, a, a woman who was critical of his ministry came to Billy Sunday and said, Why do you keep putting on revivals when they don't last? And he said to her, why do you keep taking baths? See, there is a time to take stock of where I'm at in my walk and go, wait a second. I need renewal. I need to be with the Lord where where I once was. There's a time to understand that distance. You know, every time, every time there is distance in my relationship to the Lord, He has not moved. I have. Every time. And there's a time to desire renewal in that relationship. To desire it personally for me, for my family, and for my church. And if you have a desire for renewal in your relationship to the Lord, I want you to know that lasting renewal will always come and include meeting the Lord in His Word. We cannot neglect the Scriptures and at the same time wonder why my relationship is not what it was. 
Because this is how God chose to reveal himself to people. He's like, I want to know people. How am I going to let them know me? This is how he set out to do it. It's not spiritual experiences. It's not uh, primarily. You know, it's not those, what we talked in Sunday school, our weird God stories. We could go around the room and share weird God stories where God intervened in our lives in a miraculous way. And those experiences are awesome. They're real. God intervenes in our lives in ways. Sometimes we can feel, we know it's him who did it. We could all share those stories. But listen, God does those on his time. That's not what we, that's not how we seek him. We can't hold him hostage. Like, God, I'm holding our relationship hostage until you do something amazing. That can't be the basis of my relationship with him when he has given me the way he chose to relate to me in the scriptures and in prayer. That is, that's my, I don't know if criticism is the right word, but that's my criticism of much of, I don't want to give a blanket statement for everything, but much of the the wave of Christian or pseudo-Christian movies and books and things that that are out right now, my... I'm not ever going to be the guy like picketing in front of the theater trying to keep people away from, you know, this is not a campaign. But here's my criticism. What I think many of them make people desire is not how God chose to reveal himself to us. I think many of them advertise the false claim that you can be close to God on your own. Away from, away from the church. You don't need a church. You can go, I don't know, in a shack. Um, you can be on your own, by yourself. You don't need the word and relate that. But that's just not the plan God had. Consistently meeting God in his word is how if I want to be intentional, in renewing my relationship with the Lord, it has to include that because this is where he speaks to my soul. This is where I know it is him and I'm constantly reminded how he loves me, how faithful he is, how he keeps his promises over and over and over. Well, today in the book of Nehemiah, we're going to see an example of a community beginning to experience spiritual renewal, revival. It's been a a couple of weeks but because of Easter, but we learned last week that the walls of Jerusalem have been built and now Nehemiah is going to start rebuilding the people. And when he wants to start rebuilding inside the walls of Jerusalem, he doesn't start with education or more infrastructure or social programs. He starts by getting people in the word of God. And as we read Nehemiah chapter 8, which we're going to do right now, if you want to find your your Bible, you're going to notice the centrality of the Scriptures to this passage of Scripture. The Scriptures are the main character in Nehemiah chapter 8. And you'll also maybe notice how similar what they did on that day, how similar that was to what we try to do here 
on Sunday mornings. Let's read our passage this morning. Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm actually going to start with the last half of the last verse of Nehemiah chapter 7 because it really kind of an unfortunate chapter break. But So the end of Nehemiah 7, 73 is where we begin and it goes like this. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. And all the people gathered as one man, or gathered together at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Ezra read from the law before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose and beside him stood all these people whose names you can pronounce on your own. Verse 5. Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 7, also, these other guys whose names are hard to pronounce were Levites, and they explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that the people could understand the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, this is either Ezra or Nehemiah, it's difficult to tell, in verse 10. Then he said, go, eat of the fat and drink of the sweet and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat and to drink and to send portions and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. And then on the second day, the heads of the father's households of all the people and the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might again gain insight into the words of the law. Verse 14, they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths or tents during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out into the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of other leafy trees and make tents out of them like the Bible says. And so the people went out and and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. Verse 17, the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made these tents and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, and there was great rejoicing. And he read from the book of the law of God daily. 
from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was another solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Okay, in that passage, at the beginning, the main point of the first five verses, I think, is the eagerness of the people to receive the word. The, 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 wall, the dust has settled from the construction project and people are kind of going back to their houses, but they get together for what we would call a church service and they come incredibly eager to know what's in the scriptures. Their eagerness is communicated in several different ways. But first, just know they didn't have Bibles at home, right? They, they just had one, the scrolls were kept in the, in the temple probably here. And, and so they, they get together for this church service and they ask Ezra to please read the word to us. Verse 3 tells us, especially if we know Hebrew, Six hours that day he read the scriptures. Hallelujah! Six hours. That's, that is what I'm shooting for today. In honor of this passage, I hope you don't have anything in the oven. Because we're going for six hours. No, you have a Bible at home, so you don't need me to go on for six hours. But don't... And, and we're told they listened intently for that time. Their eager-heartedness is half the battle toward the spiritual renewal that happens in Jerusalem. If they're not eager to receive the word when they show up here, Ezra can read and the Levites can teach all they want. But there will be no renewal because their eagerness to hear the word, even if it hurts, even if it tells me I need to change, I want to know what you say so it can control me. Their eagerness to know what's in there is half the battle. That's pretty easy scripture to apply to us. When we settle down, when you settle down ready for the scriptures, do you know how important your eagerness to hear the word is to the effectiveness of the sermon that follows, it's over half the battle. William Barclay, in his great commentary on Matthew, wrote this. Read this. In any church service, the congregation preaches more than half the sermon because the congregation brings an atmosphere with it. And that atmosphere is either a barrier through which the preacher's word cannot penetrate or else it is such an expectancy that even the poorest sermon becomes a living flame. So what I'm trying to tell you is, if this sermon stinks, it's at least half your fault. That's what I want you to know this morning. No, it's not. But in all seriousness, if, if your level of expectation and hunger for the Word isn't where it needs to be, it doesn't matter how good the sermon is. It's not going to do anything to you. It's not, it's not osmosis. That's why we, we sing and we pray ahead of time to try and prepare our hearts to create eagerness. There, Are you ready when you come here to hear what the Lord has? I want you to also notice next in, in verses 4 and 5, the physical arrangement 
of what happened that day. This isn't in the temple. It's very interesting. They don't go in the temple to do this. Outside the temple this happens. And, and Ezra is on a raised platform made out of wood. And he's, he's in the center. And the most important thing that will happen that day is the reading of the word. That, that's why they put him in the middle. Do you know, like in our branch of the, of the Christian church, that's why we lay things out the way we lay things out. Like our pulpit, not that we have a pulpit, we have a music stand because we're classy like that. But it's in the middle. Because that's why we spend more time doing what we're doing right now than anything else. Because this is where we meet God. In some of our more traditional, uh, and this is not a criticism, but some of our more traditional um, church services, where does the reading of the word and the preaching happen? It's over on, it's over on the side because the, the idea is what we do at an altar or in the Eucharist when the priest is turned this way, that's where we meet God. It's, it's a difference in tradition, but it's, Ours is laid out more like, more like what Ezra did here. This is central. What happens in the Word. Okay, so by this point, by verse 6, all the people are there. They're eager to hear the Word. We've been told eventually this last six hours, but the, the preaching, the, the reading hasn't even started yet. Ezra opens up the scroll in verse 5, and everyone stands up in anticipation of the word and respect for the word. But something else happens before the reading and the preaching and the teaching begins. In verse 6, we're told that Ezra blessed the Lord, and then the people worship the Lord. Now, we sang a song very intentionally called, Bless the Lord, O my soul, bless the Lord. What's it mean to bless the Lord? If the Lord blesses us, we can tell what that is, right? If the Lord blesses someone, that person has something they wouldn't otherwise have. They have a benefit that they wouldn't have without the blessing, right? If you've been blessed with good health, if you've been blessed financially, if you've been blessed with safety, if you've been blessed with a full head of hair, I'm a little bitter about that one, right? It's a blessing that you wouldn't ordinarily have if the Lord hadn't blessed you. But we can't bless the Lord like that. What can we give the Lord that he doesn't already have? There's really only one thing, because when I walked in here this morning, the Lord may not have had my whole heart. And that's the one thing I can give although I don't think that's in this context what Ezra does. Here's what it means to bless the Lord. Ezra publicly stands up before I read his word and he talks good about God. He, gives, he lists some things that God has done and in gratitude and thanksgiving, he just talks good about how awesome God is. And then when Ezra blesses the Lord like that, all the people worship which means they declare, based on that blessing, they declare how worthy God is, how, much, how he is more valuable 
than all the other things that they have in their lives. They bless the Lord and they worship the Lord. And before I leave this, I want you to notice the posture of people as they're doing this. As Ezra blesses the Lord, what do the people do? They do two things. They do two things that here in southwest Nebraska, we tend to not want to do. They shout amen, and they raise their hands. I want you to know, both of those things are okay. I mean, culturally, it's just not something we don't do very often, or very many people do, but I want you to know, it's okay. Hey, thank you. Um, you know, in this, we could go throughout the scriptures, just a few places, but we could find people raising their hands for all kinds of reasons in scripture. In prayer, people raise their hands reaching out to the Lord when they're desperate and when they're suffering. People raise their hands when they're worshiping, when they're blessing God, when they're thankful, all kinds of reasons. And I want you to know it is okay because it is biblical to do so. Now, I also want you to know that that's not the only biblical posture. That's not the prescription for blessing and worshiping the Lord either because in the same verse, people have a different posture. What do they do? They bow their heads while they worship. And and I'm not so sure that this was unison both times. My guess is in a crowd that large, there were some people raising their hands and some people bowing their heads. And I think both are okay. In fact, I know they are. When you bless and worship the Lord, do you know what the Lord is looking for? It has very little to do with your physical posture. Jesus told us that the day is coming and it is now here. <laughs> the Lord's looking for people who worship Him in what? In spirit and in truth. And here's what that tells me. When I bless the Lord, when I worship the Lord, if my spirit, if my heart, if my inner self isn't where my worship comes from, it does not matter a whit what I do on the outside. If what I'm doing on the outside isn't matched by my inside, it is not what the Lord is looking for. It doesn't matter how hard I dance, how hard I shake a tambourine, if if it doesn't match my innards, It is not what the Lord is looking for. It's not true. But if in my spirit, if in my heart I am reaching out to the Lord because I'm thankful, because I'm grateful, because I'm hurting, because I'm pained, because I'm desperate, or because of anything else, if I'm reaching out to Him in my heart, it is okay if my hands follow. But, it's, but if I'm reaching out to him in my heart, in my spirit, and me doing that physically would take my spirit off of him, it's okay to not do that too. Okay. By verse 7, the actual, what we would call the preaching, finally begins. It hasn't even started yet. They gathered um, eager to hear and they, they worship, they bless the Lord. 
And then the explanation of the scriptures start, verses 7 and 8. We were told that Ezra read for six hours, but this was not just six hours of him reading the scriptures and nothing else. He read, and then we're told that he and Levites taught, explained, gave further insight as to what was being read. And this was really important. It's always important. It was really important then because the scrolls Ezra read out of were written in 1,000, approximately 1,000-year-old Hebrew. Most of the people there, Hebrew wasn't their first language anymore. And even if it was, language changes a lot in 1,000 years. Heck, language changes in 20 or 30 years. That's why some of you parents and grandparents talk to your children and sometimes can't tell what they even mean, right? Had a kid, I asked a kid, I was at school a couple weeks ago, asked him if he saw this game, and he told me it was lit. And I thought, was there a fire? Right? And it's not just slang. Language changes. I'll prove it to you. I'm going to put a passage on the screen from an English Bible. Now, it's the first English Bible, Wycliffe's Bible, But this isn't close to a thousand years old. It's only 600 and some years old. And this is the the English Bible. See if you can recognize this passage. You may be able to pick out through there that this, oh yeah, that's that passage. If you know the passage, you probably like, oh, that's when Jesus said that thing about my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's what that is. And that is 600 year old English. I mean, you can maybe make it out, but you don't want to study out of that thing, do you? <laughs> no. No, not at all, but it's English. You know, this, that's why Warren Wiersbe said we need modern translations of the Bible. We don't need modern translations of the Bible because the Bible has changed. We need modern translations of the Bible because language changes. And the purpose of reading it is to understand what you've read. And that's what went on this day. Ezra reads, and probably because there weren't microphones and things, in smaller groups, the Levites explain and translate um, what he read. And at the end of verse 8, the people gained understanding from what was read. That's why we do what we do here, right now. Now, That does not mean you can get away with this excuse. And I know some of you have said it. Some of you have said it to me. That's why I don't read the Bible regularly because I don't understand the Bible like I do when Pastor Matt explains it. That doesn't hold water. It was was okay for them to only get it from Ezra because like I said, they didn't have Bibles. It was their only choice. You have to agree with this. Logically, you have to agree with this statement. If I read the Bible more, I will understand more of the Bible. Right? If you decide, you know what, every day I'm going to commit to reading some of the Scriptures. Every day. And maybe, okay, I'll get five out of seven days. Five days a week. Two years from now, will you understand more of the Bible than you do right now if you do that? Yes. Or... Take one book, let's say I take the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to read that dude all the way through over and over and over again for the next three months. 
Will you understand, will you know Jesus better three months from now than you do right now? The answer is yes. Saying, I don't read the Bible because I don't understand the Bible is like saying, I don't fill the bathtub up because there's no water in it. Right? You do the one to get to the other. You start the water so that it will slowly fill up. Saying, I don't read the Bible because I don't understand it. It's like saying, I don't save money because I don't have money saved. You start the one to get to the other. I don't come to Bible study. I don't meet with somebody and and talk about the word because I don't understand it like those people do. Nobody's born with this understanding. You just have to start and you will understand more. And it's important because that's where God meets his people. All right, so they've they got there eager for the word. Um, they, they blessed and worshiped the Lord. They, they got the scriptures explained to them. And then the last part of the passage, they, they reply in three ways, and we'll go through these quickly. Three major ways the people respond to the scripture now that they understand it better than they did when they should have. For these people, by the way, probably maybe the first time they'd ever heard the scriptures, some of them. Number one, first way they reply is they allow the scripture to dictate their behavior. Here's way, here's the way we see this. When they when they first show up there and Ezra starts reading in verses nine through twelve, what we read is they start to cry. They weep and they mourn. Because like I said, they, they didn't have Bibles at home. They didn't know what was in the law. They'd always heard about the law of Moses, and that's our great book. But when Ezra started to read God's behavioral expectations of them, it cut them to their hearts because they, they experienced what, what Paul said in Romans 3. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And they were crushed when they thought, oh man, we are so eager. We want to meet the Lord. Come on, give us the word. And he starts to read it. And they go, oh no, that's not the encouraging message I was looking forward to. I just learned I'm a wreck. And then they they begin to, to weep and to mourn. And that seems like it would be a really good response. And in next week's passage, it will be. But they learn something else by reading the word. On that day, they're not, they're, this is a no crying aloud day in Israel. This was the first day of the seventh month, the Feast of Trumpets. You maybe heard it called Rosh Hashanah. On the beginning of the Feast of Booths, the scripture says today is a day for feasting and, and celebrating and joy. But the people are like, well, I don't feel like celebrating and joy because I'm a wreck. And what they do is they're like, oh, I feel this way, but the Bible says I'm supposed to be this way, and so we're going to let the Scriptures dictate our behavior. And they go have a party, and they, they prepare lots of food, and people who don't have enough, they share with them. And it's a small way, but they start right away letting the Scriptures dictate their behavior. It is so It's so powerful when God's people value the Scriptures, desire the Scriptures, seek to understand the Scriptures, and then actually do what the Scriptures say. 
You know what Jesus calls a wise person who hears and does the scriptures? Wise. You ever hear the story of the wise man who builds his house upon the rock? And the foolish man built his house in the sand. And do you know the difference between those two? They both heard the same teaching. But the wise man is the one who heard and actually did it. And a fool is someone who hears and does not let the scriptures change who they are. I'm not sure it makes you like an unbeliever, but it makes you a fool. So they let their scriptures begin to dictate their behavior. Second way they respond. Verse 10, they respond by letting the scriptures remind them of their joy. Tucked into verse 10 at the end is this great little line. Do not mourn. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Man, do I love that verse. The joy of the Lord. Do not mourn. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Here's people who just, some of them for the first time, realized how brutally sinful they are. And it crushes them emotionally. And they want to mourn and, and weep. And when they say, whoa, 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 don't be sad. This is not a time for mourning. I'm sure they were like, why? Did you hear that? I'm not like that. We just, we just read from the law. And I'm, I don't measure up. And that makes me sad. And the lesson is, whoa, 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 whoa. Your strength is not in your ability to do this. Your your moral goodness is never to be your strength. Your ability to be better than your neighbor is never to be your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And here's the joy of the Lord. He loves me still. Just through through the law comes the knowledge of sin and you fit that bill, and God loves you still. The joy of the Lord is is that he has not abandoned me. And as as we'll see next week, he will always, always, always take me back because he hasn't cast me away. The joy that we have as Christians is much more permanent than our behavior is. It doesn't go away. So the second thing they do is they, they, let the, they let their joy be in the Lord. Let that be their strength. Their strength isn't in their circumstances. They don't say, hey, why are you sad? Look, we've got a brand new wall. Isn't that awesome? No. It's not our circumstances. It's not our behavior that's our strength. It's the joy of the Lord. And finally, last way they respond is these, the people let the scriptures shape their, their hope. This one takes a little quick explanation. Did you catch that part when we read through there about suddenly people started building tents out of brush? Did you catch that? <laughs> that seems weird. Um, at this time of the year, in the law, it said that, that Israel was supposed to build tents out of brush, like little, like camping trip, old school tents. And what they, what they were doing is God, when, in the Exodus, God had brought Israel out of Egypt and to the promised land, but they had to wander in the desert for 40 years first. And during that 40 years, God sustained them. 
And God said, I want you to remember that by living in wilderness shelters for one week. And God could have put that at any time during the year, but he put it at this time, which was harvest. And people were like, oh, we're supposed to be in like brush tents? Well, all right, I don't know, but we're going to go where they make these little tents and they, they, they live in these for a week. And here's what it was a reminder of. When I live in this tent, I, I remember God brought this nation. He sustained them through the wilderness. He gave them food miraculously and made sure their clothes didn't wear out. So God has taken care of us in the past. And then they look around and it's just been harvest. And what does harvest remind them? We have enough food to eat. It wasn't the best year ever, but God is taking care of us in the present. And if God has taken care of us in the past, and God continues to take care of us every year in the present, what should we conclude about the future? God will take care of us in the future also. And, and beginning, the, the scriptures shape their behavior, which begins to shape their joy, which begins to shape, shape their hope. I, I picture them sitting in a little brush tent on their flat roof, and some ancient Jew going, man, what, what have I really been hoping for in the last year? What have I put my hope in? What, what are those things that I've said, you know what, I'd be happy this year if I could get this and achieve that and have those and have more of that and some of the... And sitting there in that tent, remembering God took care of this nation in the past, God takes care of me now. What could I hope in that's better than this God who always keeps His promises? And all of that in that church service, that's how spiritual renewal, revival began to break out in Jerusalem. Here's what we learn, I think, from this passage. First, a lasting spiritual renewal starts with an eagerness for the words, for the word. And listen, I know I can feel eager, but my eagerness for the word needs to be stronger than my feelings. You and I both know if we only read the Bible when we feel like it, that won't last very long. But if I am eager to know God, just like my relationship to Christ is not based on how I feel, it's based on this, the person of Jesus and getting to know him better. So spiritual renewal first, it starts with an eagerness for the word. Then, a lasting spiritual renewal requires a willingness to let that scripture I'm getting to know shape my behaviors. And it will begin to shape my hope and my joy. Because lasting spiritual renewal happens when the joy of the Lord becomes my strength. It's not my circumstances and what I have and who likes me and how popular I am. And when the joy of the Lord that I am coming to know better and better through His Word, when that becomes my strength, I'm one step closer to renewing. I'm in renewal in my relationship with God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, that uh, that day, the first day of the seventh month, 444 B.C., 
spiritual renewal began to break out in Jerusalem because people came to your word eager for it. God, I pray that for for this church, my church family, for myself, for my biological family, that there would be renewal and revival in my relationship and in our relationship to you. So that the word we are eager for begins to shape our behaviors and shape our hope and shape our joy. We know you better and love you more and be more and more like you and more full of joy because of it. Do that work in us, oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen.